This clip is from a podcast called Radio Days. It's produced and hosted by a guy named Ron Robinson. Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast radio program that delves into the world of terrestrial radio. It's DJs and on-air personality, and you, all fans of radio as a medium. Here's your host, Ron. Hello and welcome to Radio Days, the podcast. This week, we're going to be looking back at the top five moments from the top five most downloaded episodes of Season 2 of Radio Days, the podcast. Again, just like last week, I played that Howard Stern clip uh, as he was uh, talking about John O'Leary um, on his show after John had passed. And if uh, if you are a John O'Leary fan, you're going to want to stay tuned. He is in the top five. There's there's a teaser for you. hope it's not a spoiler. Uh Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos or professional photography, maybe you need drone footage from a licensed drone pilot, head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com. You can also hear this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, uh, also via Alexa. It can also be heard at ronrobinsonstudios.com. While uh, while you are there, you can also shop our online merchandise store. Get your Radio Days the Podcast hats, sweatshirts, T-shirts, other merch at ronrobinsonstudios.com. Also, uh, before we kick off the top five moments from the top five most downloaded episodes of Season 2 of this podcast, I want to remind you that in just a couple of weeks, uh, this podcast will start Season 3, and it will be available if you've listened to it on all those streaming service but starting in season three and moving beyond we will be video streaming this podcast so if you're enjoying this podcast via audio only this will that will still be there but starting in june radio days the streamcast will also be available via our partnership with nrm video streamcast so with that out of the way let's just jump right into it the number five most downloaded season two clip is taken from episode 18 of season two, December 17th, right before Christmas last year. This episode is uh, where we paid homage to the late Rosalie Trombley, who was the music programmer and golden ear uh, for CKLW. Here's radio personality uh, and one of my favorite people, Michelle McCormick, talking about what Rosalie meant to her. Check this out. And Rosalie Trombley's day, the artist <laughs> without representation there are stories the Rolling they would Stone, knock on the door. Is Rosalie home? <laughs> they followed her out to her car. Um, and of course, you know, the Bob Seger story. She was so mad at Bob Seger for writing that song about her, um, you know, and she she just was so because they knew what an influence she had. And that was how it was. And to me, uh, it was the biggest gift to be able to um uh, make that contribution to a radio station. And it was a bigger gift being that she was female and everybody, it, it shouldn't matter, but it, and it didn't to her, but it sure did to me. It well, sure did. To and me. you know what? It didn't matter to, to her. What I think is fascinating is when you look at like some of those older shows, like mad men and the way women are betrayed in the office place yeah, and this and that, I, I just don't get the sense that that was the paradigm at CKLW. I think, I think people revered no. her. I think, oh, I, you, you know what I mean? There are pictures of her, of the women sitting on desks. Not, I mean, I mean, like the men were sitting 
down in the women are sitting on desks, bossing the guys around. Those those pictures from CKLW, I mean, they look, A, they look like they had their share of fun, B, <laughs> um, but I think it was equal, equal parties in the room. And, and that I have gone through, uh, I have worked with situations when it's not equal parties in the room. And to see somebody in the 60s and 70s be not just an equal party, but the boss in the room as a female, again, it didn't matter to her. I can't, I can't say this enough. She didn't care. If she had, was a female, she just knew what a hit was. I cared that she was a female because it made me, um, I know that's why the guy's name is Matt Clennett, who gave me the position of music director. And I know he did it because he read that essay. No, none of those 12 guys who were up for it wrote an essay about Rosalie Trombley right. and why I think I could be, you know, do this. Cause I, and, and so I really, that's what she meant to so many. And I heard about, when I heard about her passing, it was like, Oh, and then I thought, um, I, we all have watched the, the big eight, the, the big eight documentary, the CKLW, the funk brothers documentary. They all talk about anything about Detroit music. Her name is mentioned in it. the yeah. Motown documentary. You hear her name mentioned in it, the Rolling Stones documentary, the muscle shoal documentary. They all talk about Rosalie Trombley in their, in their documentaries because she had such an influence And the best part of it is she didn't even know it. That's the best. And even when you met her later in life, when she should have known it, because there yeah. was award after award, after, she didn't care. She didn't know it. And I, that to me was just, oh, it was well, great. I think her greatness is amplified it. by the fact that she kind of overshadowed another legend in Paul Drew, who was a great PD before her. And great I mean, PD. I mean, and no one remembers him because of Rosalie. No. It's well, Paul <laughs> Drew was, the, and, and, and such a, um, he, I got to meet him many times again, thanks to Jim or, or talk about him, but he, um, uh, he was very, uh, methodical and she wasn't, that's what, that's what was so great. She would walk in and go that, that, and that, bye-bye. You know what I mean? Literally. And <laughs> she just knew and not that. And what song, there was one song that he, there's a, it's a boy, I can't tell the story and I'm going to not do it justice. Legendary song that he wanted to play and she didn't. And it flopped. And that happened a lot. She, he didn't want to play it and she said, play it. And it didn't like, it was a huge hit. And, um, but yeah, again, was it the Rolling Stones ballad, but wild horses? I don't remember, but there are, there's so many of those stories, but for me, you're asking me this chunky girl who did radio across (laughs) the state from her. For me, it meant that it made me have, um, I felt like at 23 years old that I had the chutzpah, that I had the drive enough because she did it. I could do it. And again, I, I've said it now six times, but I'm going to say it again. It didn't matter to her that she was a woman, but it mattered to me that she was because it made me feel like I could do it too. And, and I, I was lucky enough, lucky enough back then to have a guy who gave me a chance to do it and took me seriously. And um, he had a lot of sisters. <laughs> that's why I'm true. That's why what he do said, you, I'm used to, I had a lot of sisters. So yeah. <laughs> what do you think uh, Rosalie's legacy will be now that she's, now that she's no longer oh with us? God. She'll never know. I mean, you can't say just a sentence. That's a whole other, I mean, to me, it's, a, it's, to me, it's radio, but to, to other people, it's rock and roll. If you ask Mick Jagger, he'll say it made his career. She made his career. If you ask the Bee Gees, <laughs> she'll say that, that they, well, the BG, I apologize. Well, you can even go back to the Beatles. I mean, I mean, yeah, everybody all, the talks Beatles. about the Ed Sullivan show, but yeah. I mean, CKLW no. started playing them before any other radio station in the country. Paul McCartney will say that too. He, you know, everybody knows her as Rose, Rosalie, everybody. So to me, it's, it's that it's radio. She made pop radio what it is today, but to, uh, to rock and roll, it's rock and roll to, um, anybody in the radio business, it's what, it's what that she worked her way up in the business. So it's a lot of things. So to me, it's radio, her legacy. And, uh, will always be that she made 
radio stations flow. She made pop stations flow. And still, it still is an important thing. And I, that's what, that's what I learned from her. And to me, to meet her was like meeting a, um, I felt like I was meeting a rock star, meeting her because again, the rock stars kowtowed to her. <laughs> you know, at one point she was bigger than a lot of rock stars. So. Do, you, do you have a favorite before I let you go on? You've been more than kind with your time, but do you have no, a favorite no. uh, Rosalie story that maybe obviously maybe you've heard uh, over the years? The only one that I can think of is, and again, it's telling after it's been told, it's that she was so upset and didn't take Bob Seger's calls at when he wrote the Rosalie song about her, she didn't want to play it. She was very upset about that. I don't, I can't tell it. I can't do it justice. I can't, but I'm anybody else could tell you that story, how she was so disappointed that he wrote that song. The fourth most downloaded episode of season two of radio days was episode eight from October 8th of last year. My guests that day were music producer, Denny Deontay and Detroit musician, Brian Pastoria in this clip. Denny and Brian talk about how Denny worked with Michael Jackson on his legendary record-breaking album, Thriller. Denny, I want to ask you, how did you come to be working with Michael Jackson on Thriller? You well, can make an argument was, that that's one of the biggest records of all time. It is. It was very complicated, and it was very political, and it was very, you know, one had to be very careful in that whole family thing. You know, because uh, Joe was really the... Uh, you know, the guy who was in control of everything. Um, I, I was kind of assigned because of the experience that I had. I mean, I knew Michael early on and there was a relationship friendly. And I, and I think the friendship came trusted and CBS said, well, we need somebody who can, you know, whenever. And I said, well, Denny, <laughs> okay. I was kind of the go-to guy in a lot of stuff that was like, go handle it. And I was just from, I don't know why, but it, they chose me. But, you know, Michael would come in and, and, and start talking about, you know, a problem with the pro, uh, uh, recording and that he didn't like it and everything else. And I'd listen to it and i go, yeah, you, I think I think you're right, Michael. Go back and, you know, whip it up. Do your thing. Will you go? Goodbye. And it was really, really more of a overseer kind of a job, kind of a assignment to make sure that, you know, it's all, it all works together for him because he was, he was so creative that it was hard to, to collect that creativity and bring it into focus. Well, and, and I want and, and I want to ask you about that because I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I wanted to bring it up to just magnify the fact that yeah. you have worked with among the best musicians in these in 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 and and for you to be working on and specifically talking about the the, the Michigan music scene. But before, yeah. but but I do want to ask you that because when I think of musical genius, I think of Stevie Wonder, Paul McCartney, you know, Prince. Um, and, oh yeah, but but. Uh, Ray Charles, but you could, I mean, Michael is obviously a musical genius. What did you just have to be careful not to watch in awe because you were part of the, I mean, was that difficult for you? Because I can't imagine you not being struck by his musical genius. Oh, you know, I was always struck by his, his musical genius, but you know, it's, he, you know, he would do things automatically. I mean, it's not like he sat down and worked on something, you know, all of a sudden he'd come up with a, a riff of a groove or a, a, a and it was just at the it was at the last second. Let's try this, bam! And there it is. He was really the one who made his records. 
he was the force, the brilliance, all in one. And unfortunately, he just had a very bad, you know, life. Yeah. With, you know, family and all the rest yeah. of it. It just, you know. But you, it no, never takes away from the musical genius that was that record and then some of the stuff you no. made after that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. Listen, he, you know, it's like who's gonna, who can, t- who can take credit for anything with Michael Jackson other than Michael Jackson because he was just all of it. I mean, I, I never worked with an artist that was completely a hundred percent all of it. He yeah. had it down from every lick, from every sound, from every this. He knew exactly what he wanted, and that was that was a gift he had. Now, Brian, and, you I, know, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Denny. No, 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 no. That's it. I mean, it, it, again. Michael was Michael. And that's why he was so big. He was just unique. Now, Brian, I know you're, I mean, you're even to this day, I, I know I'm sure that you, you, you write music, but ha- having been friends with Denny, have you ever kind of just called and just thrown stuff past him as a songwriter or even just about ideas? Well, not really as a songwriter. We talk about the music, you know? Um, and the, you know, the thing is, I, I think Denny is, very, uh, he's pretty humble guy. And there was a big reason why CBS had him working on the Michael Jackson music. And that's because at these record labels, you had to have real music people, especially with a Michael Jackson. There was no messing around with Michael too, with Quincy. So the label had to have somebody that could work with a Michael and a Quincy. And Denny was the guy. You know, and I think that's why Michael liked Denny because, you know, he respected him. And when you're working with the record label, some of these people at the record labels, you know, it's like, it's difficult if it's not the right chemistry. So, you know, that's, that's the whole thing in itself. The third most listened to episode from season two of this podcast is from October 22nd. 2021 in this episode detroit rock jock and the late john o'leary came into the studio to interview me about my career in radio in this clip john and i discuss some cool moments from my career cool moments working in radio but we also discuss the art of introducing a band at a concert check this out most impressive things you know those cool things that you've gotten to do because of radio anything in your head that- well i mentioned the other day when i was talking to pasman him teaching me three chords on a guitar when i worked in with him at specs <laughs> that was cool and now we can expect your first yeah. album when <laughs> right uh- well just i mean because i knew who mac pasman was i knew he was the, the pd for sure. riff one time yeah. i knew he was part of the bruiser band right uh, so that was kind of cool, but um, PD for been, CSX, not PD riff. for well, he was PD for Riff too. Oh, was he? Yeah. I, maybe I didn't know that. Okay. Uh, during the during the JJ in the morning crew days. Okay. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that was a thrill, and and meeting Muhammad Ali was a thrill, uh, meeting Shania Twain was a thrill. Um, being at some of these concerts, you know, of the of the going to the Country Intros. Music Hall of Fame. Have you ever intro a band? I, Yes, I interviewed okay. the Beach Boys to 10,000 people in St. Joe, Michigan, and that was a thrill. Really? And who was that still was in thrill. the band then? Mike huh? Love was still yeah, in the band, yeah. and, and it wasn't Brian Wilson, but most of the guys were still there. So, okay, all right. It was fun. Yeah, it's hard to keep track of the Beach Boys. But, They've yeah. been around a long time. You know? but, but, but that was fun because that's like, are you ready for the Beach Boys? And you're yeah. like, I didn't hear you. Yeah, right. You know, it's just right. the, you know, the deal with the whole that. fun. It's, it's uh, just, yeah. So is that your only big experience on um, stage? I interviewed uh, Ronnie Millsap. Okay, interview. Uh, no, I mean int- introduce. Introduce. And, and uh, Dirk okay. Bentley. 
And who? And John Barry. Dirk okay. Bentley and John Barry, country uh, artist. Yeah. What's the biggest venue? Was it the Beach Boys? Oh, it was the Beach Boys in By front far? of 10,000 people. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That was the yeah. biggest crowd, absolutely. Yeah. Outdoors? That was outdoors, yeah, St. John. Outdoors is fun. Uh, oh, different animal. And and in my experience, and only because I'm older and somebody has to be, so it might as well be me, uh, I was in radio and w- was introing bands at like Cobo Arena when you couldn't see, not only because, you know, actually when you're on a stage at night or outdoors or indoors at any time, you really, and the lights are down, you really only see the first 10 or 15, 20 rows, and then it kind of... right. It's just right. this haze. But back in the smoking days, there was smoke, yeah. so much smoke, you couldn't see anything, you know? Right. But by far, the, the Silver Dome was the biggest one oh, I ever did. And huge. That's, yeah, that was pretty surreal is the word, only word I can think of. So, But that was always the thrill, no matter how big you are as a disc jockey, one of the biggest, coolest things that you get to do is introduce is bands. Is introduce bands. Yeah. And, and, it's a, and uh, the, first time, the first one was which one? The first the Beach Boys. The Beach yeah. Boys. So you went up cold, never having been on a stage. No. For, for me, it was Masonic. Wait, it was, uh, was it Masonic? Uh, yeah, it was Masonic Auditorium. Wow. I believe. Or Henry Ford. Uh, what was the one downtown? The Henry, uh, shit. Uh, Ford Auditorium. Ford Auditorium. That's what I'm thinking of. Uh, you can't say shit. Oh, yes, I yeah, can. It's can. the it's internet. It's a podcast. Yeah. It's the internet. doesn't matter. Uh, um. So I, I was able to do it at a smaller venue as opposed to this. Now, do you remember thinking about, oh, God, I'm going to go up on this stage in front of all these people? Did that occur to you? I, or did I remember you... my butt was real tight. Yeah. I'm not going to yeah. lie. It was, it's, yeah. it's, it's a different thing talking into a microphone when you're in a studio by yourself yes. and being Absolutely. in front of 10,000 people yes. who want to hear music. That's yes. a different thing. And, and you learn some tricks. Uh, <laughs> you know, like uh, never go up and say, hi, I'm John O'Leary or I'm yeah. Ron Robinson because nobody cares. <laughs> nobody gives nobody a shit. Cares. Get off the stage. So, yeah, right. Yeah. You go up and you get them geeked <laughs> and you get them ready and then you say, by the way, I'm John O'Leary from, I'm Ron Robinson from Forts, whatever it is, yeah. you know? And that's when they're riled up and going and they're yeah. just going to, yeah, and then you introduce the band. That's yeah. The secret of doing, for those of you aspiring DJs, that's how you intro a band. Save your name and, and piggyback onto them. You know? And, you know, and, 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 and while we're talking about that's another thing that was disappointing. Because and, and, although I did have opportunities to do that, that was a thing that was becoming less and less common. Because I remember bands would stop asking the local yes. radio personality yes. and they would just have their own person. Yeah. So that wasn't always, the, that, that became less and less as the years went on. It, it, that's true. And I was able to, I've, I can't imagine, but I would say 200 times I've maybe, well, if you count bars, we're talking right. oh, a yeah. thousand oh. times on a stage, yeah. you know, but, but for big places, several hundred and, and um, you know, it, it's a great experience, but you're right. It used to be, it would, you would have a concert and it would be like W4 presents. Right. Or WABX presents, or your station in Fort Smith presents. You know, you were you were the station that had your name on it, right? And therefore, your DJ went up and did the intro, right? That's not the case anymore. That just doesn't happen anymore. So, but yeah, know, but, but but as far as bigger big moments, meeting Jesse Jackson was a thrill. I'm sorry, do the same thing. I just, just getting back to the the big moments of my career to to come full circle. You know, the, some of the people that I've met and, and the experiences that you just get to be a part of, you know, just uh, whether it was being at St. Jude, like I mentioned, or being at the CMA Awards um, or being at concerts, there's a lot of cool experiences. So I don't know if I can name just one, but uh, but being in radio, the journey has definitely 
uh, I feel made me a, a better and, and person. You truly have had a journey. In oh radio. yeah. With yeah. me, I was static. I stayed in the same <laughs> city, never ventured further than Lansing, you know, and, uh, uh, for only for a minute. It, it, I've been very lucky in that regard, but that fit my personality right. because I wanted to stay in one place and you, and I don't know if originally, I mean, was it hard to originally just leave, up and leave and go down south? Yes, or? but it's as much as some of the situations sucked ass, and mm. some of them did. I yeah, mean, sure, I'm looking at you, Fort Smith. Yeah. Uh, but but even those experiences were there was some positives that came along the way. Sure. But but ultimately, I was appreciative because you know because I was born in Highland Park and and spent a lot of my childhood in East Detroit and East Point and grew up in Shelby and different. Those are three different parameters of ways of life there. Mm -hmm. And then my time in the Marine Corps and the people that I was exposed to from all different parts of the world. Uh, and then radio. I mean, the, the people that you meet in, meet in the different markets. It, it, I appreciate that. It, as much as when you get out of specs, you're like, I want to work in Detroit, and I want to work yeah, in Detroit till right. I retire. Major market. I'm so thankful that that wasn't my path because right, I would right. have been cheated out of all the experiences sure. that I had at those smaller markets, yep. which to me enriched me as a human being more than, than anything. So and, I uh, appreciate that. And I can understand the, the, the lure of the smaller markets. Uh, like you said at one point, if it wasn't for Jan, you would have might have stayed down yeah. there. Oh. And I can see the, the <laughs> lure of it because I my first job was in Hastings, and I remember saying yeah. to the GM, man, I'd like to stay here. Can I? Yeah, ever you had a great time in Hastings, yeah, right? Can I make any money here? And he was honest and said no. <laughs> and so I realized, no, this isn't the place for me, you know. Uh, well, because and, of the truth of the matter well, is. Well, it was because I was a big city boy like yeah. you, you know. But the truth of the matter is, when you're talking about the styles of radio, it's a lot different in Detroit than it is in smaller markets. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and there's a way. But when you're talking about the power of radio as a medium, mm -hmm. the way they do it in smaller markets, the way Jack O'Malley did it in Traverse City, the way we try to do it in Benton Harbor, you can do things in smaller markets that make it, in my eyes, a better product that you just can't do in bigger markets just because More of... personal. It's, yes. Yeah. But there's to me, there's just there's things you can do in radio in a smaller market that you would never be sure, allowed to do. It's not as strict. And, and, yeah. and, and that has its plus, that, that pros and cons. But... Yeah. But to me, my journey, I, I couldn't be more happy. And I don't know because I've been out of radio now for eight years, but uh, I get the impression that it's tightened up just from some couple of things I've heard that it's tightened up in uh, the smaller markets too somewhat. Yeah, I've heard that too. So, you know, yeah. what can you do, right? Well, I don't Progress. even, yeah, if I was, those small markets now are not the same as they were in the mid-2000s for right. sure. Yeah. And number two is episode 27 of season two from March 4th earlier this year. My guest that day was Michael Persh from one of my favorite all-time bands, Rhythm Corps. In this clip, Michael talks about Rhythm Corps' album, Common Ground. Love this clip. Take a listen. Well, so. I, I know you had Vanishes on that record, and there was a couple other ones that I think yeah. are phenomenal, but I really, I mean, and I know the single is probably, you know, got the most national airplay, but I, to me, this record, Common Ground, that you guys made, mm. was the first record that I remember thinking, I love every single cut on this record. And I know, like I said, Common Ground got the most love, but Father's Footsteps, I want to ask specifically about that, and I and I, and I learned at the top that your dad was in the service. Did you write talk about the, the writing of that song? Because that, to me, that song still is more apt today than it ever was. I love that tune, Father's Footsteps. Could you talk about that song, if you would? Sure. Um, you know, listen, there's a, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain grandiose to rhythm core just in our concept. You know, we 
we always wanted to be larger than life. You know, rhythm core to us existed out existed as a thing that was not us. Our, you know, we were all we were all relatively humble, regular dudes. But when we were, but rhythm core to us was like this huge thing that that we had to serve in a way. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that really makes a whole lot of sense, but. Um, but we saw Rhythm Core as like its own entity that we had to, you know, we had to like bring and, and be large when we were in Rhythm Core. Um, a little bit of split personality there. So doing that song seemed completely right along lines. You know, I look at it now and, and, and you know, a lot of the songs that we did and they, and they seem, uh, it, it seems like we're, we've taken on maybe a little bit more than we can chew. But um, in terms of in terms of father's footsteps, we all grew up in the Vietnam era, where you woke up, played outside during the summer, and at night you had dinner. And Walter Cronkite was on the was on the TV, um, giving you the you know giving you the body count of the day right. and how many American soldiers were killed versus how many Vietnamese soldiers you know North Vietnamese soldiers were killed. This was the world that we grew up in. Edwin Starr did a song called War. You know, there was like protests. We we grew up at a time when it was, you know, war, the Vietnam War was prevalent. It was opposed. It was, I mean, it was controversial. And we were, you know, basically as young people, we were, you know, we were influenced by the, not the older people, but by the, you know, the younger, the younger older people. That makes sense, you know the um, the teens and the uh, you know the people that we were you know the, the 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 people we were looking up to that we thought were cool. So and and of course music reflected it. So rhythm core had that had that you know desire to be did that desire to think that music could be larger. You know music could actually do something. So for father's footsteps. We just, we, uh, I think at the time we, there was conflicts going on around the world. I'm trying to be, I think we, you know, um, Brits invaded the Falklands. There were some other, there were things going on around the world. And it just seemed to me like we were gearing up for another Vietnam. And so Father's Footsteps basically um, was just, saying, let's not do that again. Let's not follow in our father's footsteps. And, you know, some of the, you know, every once in a while you get a, you get a line that you get a line that sort of like pro, that propels a song into the, you know, that propels a song. Oh. Um, Davey, I think came up with the line father's footsteps. And then I think I came up with one of the lines in it that was like, you know, um, point blank range, 15, you know, 15 minutes is oh, point blank. That's range. a beautiful line. Yeah. And um, and so with those two lines, we we just you know those two lines dictated what this song was going to be, and we made it. And so we just kind of like did that. Now, first of all, isn't that weird? I mean, for I I, I do want to say that I, there's more than more than one song has been written because because somebody came up with a line. We're like, oh, that's a good one. Let's do that. And then you just write the song around that line. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Another one that really talking about great lyrics, solidarity. That's another one that has some very, hard, you know, very impactful lyrics. Talk about the that song. I, I've you know I've written about that one on online before, but um, that's you know that was the first song that Rhythm Core wrote as a band, and at the time we still had Bobby O in the band. 
we were downstairs just trying to figure it out. We didn't know who, I, I didn't know who Richie was. I met Richie because he came down. Because Greg said, Richie's going to play drums. Okay, great. Richie's playing drums. I don't know this guy. Uh, Davey had just moved back from Traverse City. And I knew he was going to be in the band. I just didn't know him. And Greg, I just was familiar with. He was, you know, we'd, you know, like I said, we had, we'd done a, an audition together. And Bobby O was, you know, a friend. So he was the only one that I really knew down in the basement over at Richie's house that day. And we started playing. And probably the second or third time that we got together, Greg brought in those, Greg brought in the riff for Solidarity. And Davey said to me, I got an idea. Uh, I've been pulling, I've been, I've been, you know, I've been thinking about this idea. Back then, Lech Walesa and uh, Solid, the Solidarity, Solidarity Movement in Poland was making news. So Bass goes, how about this for an idea? Solid, you and me, Solidarity. Now it sounded more like a love song, but um, he said, you and me, Solidarity. I was like, yeah, that's kind of cool. I like that. I like that you're taking a topical, you know, something topical and turning it into something. And then Greg played this and immediately, as soon as Greg started playing that riff, the riff was just so obvious. Everybody in the, like Davey, Greg, uh, Davey, Richie, um, Bobby, boom. They started playing basically what you hear on the radio, what you hear on that record. And it was just like guitar riff, bass, drums, go. And it just seemed, and I started just vamping. I started vamping, uh, like, which is what I would do. I would just vamp vocal lines. And bass had just whispered solidarity in my ear. So there was an obvious place for, I thought, for solidarity in it. Well, that's what I was going to say. You give credit to the musicians, but man, do you, more than most songs of rhythm core, you really used your voice as an instrument in that song. You did things with your voice that I think were amazing. So kudos to you, sir. Yeah. Well, I was trying to match what, I mean, like my, you know, my voice was my instrument. I wasn't playing anything. So it's like, you're standing there and these guys are just pumping. It's louder than bombs. And they're just, you, you, I mean, there's only one thing you can do is scream, you know? Right. It's, yeah. it's, it, it's the only thing that makes sense is to, you know, just sing as loud and as hard as you can to what's going on all around you. And then, um, and then lyrically, it just kind of came together with, um, uh, I think I had said like a flight, I, a, this air, this flight had gone down in the Potomac um, and there were, uh, um, but there were survivors and um, it was the winter and people were on the side of the banks of Potomac making a human, you know, con, you know, cr- creating a human chain to go out and bring people in who were, who were, who had made it through this crash, who were in the river. And um, that picture was on the, that picture was on the front page or, or in one of the pages of the free press that was lying there next to me. And that line, and, and I saw that and the line was, you know, strength that binds us to the common purpose came into, you know, just kind of came into my great head. Lyric, great lyric. And I went, and that was it. That's all I had. I had solidarity and strength that binds us to the common purpose. And then a bunch of vamp lines. And then, you know, I said, okay, well, that's, well, there you go. That's where this song's going. We yeah. hammered out, you know, I hammered out the rest of the lyrics. Now, obviously, I would love to go through each one of these songs, but before we move on from Common Ground as the record, I have to ask you about the single. I mean, that was, you know, I think the famous line is, we're not that stupid. Were you surprised by the, that that was, out of all these great tunes, all these 10 cuts that were just flawless, if you ask me, that that was the one that broke out? And, and how did you feel about that at the time? 
Um, it was, uh, you know, there was something, there was something about it. Like I knew, you know, we knew that it was a good song because of the way that it would went, it went over live. And once we recorded it with Ben Gross over at Pearl Sound, we did three songs with Ben and we took them out to California and shopped them. And that's where we got our deal. Ben's version of Common Ground was the version that actually ended up on the record for Sony uh, for, you know, uh, uh, you know, and uh, much to our other producers chagrin. And we fought for it because we just thought it was a, we thought it was like, it was the cut that really, that really worked. We cut it back in Detroit. It sounded great. Ben has obviously gone on to prove himself to be just the world-class producer of doom. And, uh, um, and we were right to, to fight for it. And we did. And it, and it, and it literally, it really came to, it was not, it was not an easy fight, but that said that line always haunted me because it was just like, it was clumsy and, and weird and everything that I don't like, but it was also, that's also what I liked about it. It was, you know, I like, uh, I like to think that there's some sophistication to the lyrics and that line was not, that line was dumb. <laughs> and there was something about putting a, just a, just a sledgehammer of a line in a song that seemed to have some nice elegance to it that appealed to me at the time. It was sort of like a inside joke. And yet when we went to the studio to record it, I tried like a hundred different, I was like, I can't use this line. This is, this, this is that stupid. <laughs> and, and I, and Ben and I worked on this for probably an entire night. And I just hammered, I hammered out line after line, after line, after line. And it was like, and he finally stops me and he goes, you know what? He goes, stop it. This line actually works. And it adds just the right amount of quirkiness to the song. Yeah. And the most listened to podcast of season two was episode 15 from November 24th of last year. My guest that day was the late John O'Leary. In this episode, we talked about his storied career in Detroit radio. Here's a clip from that show where John discusses his time at W4 and WABX. You're at WABX, you're riding high. Why did you go back to W4? <laughs> because I quit on the air. <laughs> oh, I almost forgot about that. You have to share that story. I'm glad you brought that up. You quit on the air. You, yeah. So I, you're uh, nine, why did you quit WABX? You just well, there enough. were a lot of reasons. It was uh, it was 1980. First of all, the first time I left, I, I quit. Ted Ferguson, a.k.a. China Jones, who was at WDRQ. He, he was the Super Q. WDRQ, you know, screaming top 40. Love it. Loved it. Didn't like the idea of the guy from DRQ coming over to program ABX. They hired him because they wanted somebody who could start to institute a format. I mean, it had to happen. Now, this is 19, I'm thinking 78 or 79, maybe. Maybe 79. I Only Steve Costian can remember dates. I, I'm no good at it. Uh, it's all a blur. So... I didn't like the idea. In fact, none of us liked the idea of, wait a minute, we're going to be bossed by a guy who's coming from DRQ. That's a whole different world than what we do at ABX. And he came in and I hate, and I've since apologized to him. Uh, and I don't know if he remembers or not some of the things I did, but uh, there was uh there was a point in time where we were, the, the air staff was actively talking about all quitting in mass. And uh, it didn't happen because I think we realized that if we did that, 
they just hire people that weren't any good that would do whatever they wanted. So, you know, we knew we could get around some of the things we put them through hell. One day I was pissed off about something and he came into the production studio. I was doing some commercials after my show. We would actually do our own commercials. You go in production, lay down a track and talk over the record and record it and splice it. The old splicing tape and the editing, you know, the splicing block and, uh, it was, which was an art too, by the way, and uh, a forgotten art now. Gee, it's so much easier now. <laughs> and, and I think I was one of the last part of the last classes that we actually had to edit on really? the real. Yeah. Oh, I learned that real well back in the day. You had to. It was all part of the deal. You know, you had to know how to splice tape. And uh, uh, so he came in the studio and started telling me something. Probably I had done wrong on the air or something. Not like today, where they really get on you about doing it. He was comparatively it was nothing the format was nothing compared to nowadays but just the idea was the whole thing back then he came in and he said john uh you don't do this and And i said look and i reached over the tape deck and i grabbed him physically assaulted this man and said get the fuck out of my studio and don't ever come back and I let him go, and he turned around and walked out. Poor Ted. And I love Ted now. I mean, we get along. There are some people that still will not talk to him. I mean, that yeah. do not like him. And it's unfortunate because I don't think carrying a grudge is a good thing. But the point is, he left, and I thought to myself, well, now's a good time to quit. <laughs> and uh, so I turned, because I, I figured I'm going to be fired, you know. And so I walked out of the studio, walked down the hallway, and uh, the national program director was in town, Bob Birch. He was on the phone in the general manager, Al Wilson's office, and I kept saying, Bob, Bob, hey, Bob, you know, I got to talk to you right now. He couldn't put that phone down. So I gave him the finger and turned around and went around the horseshoe and walked out of the building. I was gone. What happened was the next morning, uh, I went in to clean out my locker and uh, Jim Sote was doing middays then. This is before Lubin. He would, Lubin was doing weekends, but uh, he was... He took over for Sauté, and the reason that happened was because of me. The next day, the VP, Shelly Graffman, the vice president of uh, the company, Century Broadcasting, came in because his afternoon drive guy had quit all of a sudden, and that's a big deal, you know? I didn't think of it in those terms. I'm just pissed off, you know? And so he came in. He walked in the studio, and Jim Sauté had just found out about it, and he started bitching at Shelly Graffman in the studio about this whole situation, and he fired him on the spot. Wow. Now, all of a sudden, you have no middays and no afternoons. That's eight hours of the broadcast day. Yes, we did four hours back then. Eight hours of the broadcast day are now gone. Now, that's a major problem. So I came in that afternoon to clean out my locker. I walked out, left, <clears throat> went over to the big boy. There was a big boy right at 8 Mile in Coolidge and went over there with a couple of people, Mike Coasty, the production director, some other people, and had lunch. When I came back, and I have this sheet of paper at home, um, I there was a yellow piece of lined paper, you know, the old office pad, you know what I mean? Uh, legal paper under my windshield wiper. And I looked at it and it was from Bob Birch and it said, John, please come up and talk to me before you leave. This is the day after I had walked out. I went back up. We talked, we went out to the golden mushroom. I remember that place over on uh, like 10 and Southfield, I think it was. And, uh, and we, uh, I got a, I got a, I told him I wanted a $6,000 raise I was make, and I'll tell you what I was making. Back then, I was doing afternoon drive, making twelve thousand a year. But wow. yeah, I know I, I've never, and that's why 
Social Security is my lifeline now because I never had a contract with any radio station. I never had a, a business manager. I never did any of that. Uh, it was a failing of mine because I, I, was, I was so into radio, I really didn't care about the business aspect. Hey, if I'm making enough to live and I'm happy, I'm good. You know, And that's still my philosophy, but I never wanted to be rich. But the point is, I was making 12 and I got six more added on to it. I got half nice. my salary all over again, right? So I came back and then uh, he fired me on New Year's Day the following year, and then uh, I was gone for like eight months. Then Karen Savelli left and went to Riff, and I called Bob Birch, the national PD in St. Louis, and said, or in L.A., he was probably in L.A. I called him and said, uh, Bob, I forgot what the argument was about. And he said, he talked like this. He goes, oh, Larry, don't talk to anybody. I'm blowing into town. And he came in. And we got together, and I was back again, working for Ted again. And again, he had no say in it. It must have been hell for him. I feel bad. But uh, in the end, though, I quit on the air. And the reason I did that had to do with uh, being young, being chemically imbalanced, to be honest with you, and people around me having that same problem. Some of the people who were running the show. Uh, Ted had left by then. He was gone. It was a different PD. But... uh, you know, it, I just made the decision. But I'll, the one thing I do remember about that day is I taped it. I put it on a cassette because I wanted a record of it. I didn't say anything bad about the station. That wasn't my goal. I just said, this is my last show, and I'm and I'm leaving ABX. And uh, I want to thank you for listening. And this is a great radio station. It always will be, but it, I just can't be here anymore. And that was what I did. So I left and then immediately went to W4. You know, that's how it worked. I'm it back in the, so I'm a free agent. You know? So you go back to W4. Now this is, um, 1981, 1981, maybe and famously depicted in private parts, the Howard right. Stern movie. He also worked at W4. Did you work with Howard? What yes. was that like? Uh, when I went back to W4, Howard was there doing mornings and Podell was there and I came back in and I was doing weekends and, you know, at this point, I have a name, so I'm not... It's, it was kind of weird going back to that little house on 2930 East Jefferson. That was a great building. Uh, anybody listening to this that knows those days probably saw that building, went down there and hung out. Bands used to come in. People would be mobbing the place, just like they did at ABX up on 8 Mile. I uh, worked with Howard. I remember Howard being uh, as tall as I am. I'm 6'6", and Howard's the same height, I believe, and... And that's unusual uh, because I don't meet a lot of people my height. You know, it's just a little taller than most people. And I think we kind of gravitated toward each other because of that. Plus, uh, we just seemed to get along. And Howard was just a jock, you know. Yeah, he didn't. You didn't see that that was going to be Howard Stern. No, you know, and the only reason that did become Howard Stern was because he was in the right place at the right time, made the right moves, and got big, you know. Uh, uh, that's what it's all about. It's not that necessarily he was this incredibly talented person. Not, not that I'm saying he isn't. But it's all about where you're at when something happens. You know what I mean? I've been amazed at how he's evolved. He's quietly developed into, I think, one of the strongest interviewers. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. And I'm not degrading him at all. But at the time, he was just a morning guy on W4, you know, 1981. And and, uh, and then, well, you're probably going to ask me that question next. I'll just let you go into it. They they changed (laughs) the country to format. Is that why you left? Uh, I stayed. I um you wore the you wore the little cowboy hat that they give you did they, they really gave the, they we knew the we knew the station was changing and nobody can pin down the date it's funny how that happens uh you know it was a big event even then 
but it never occurred to me to like note the date. You know, you don't think in terms of 30, 40 years in the future. What was the date W4 when country? I don't think anybody can pin that down. So we go into the station. We, we, we knew it was going to change and, and we get a call and I did a Saturday night show up until midnight and at 6 a.m., six hours later, it's flipped a country. So I went off the air at midnight. And, and what had happened was we had no PD. The PD was gone. We were basically playing sort of a classic rock kind of thing, everything. I was playing Marvin Gaye. I was playing, you know, whatever. And uh, w- there was no direction. And nobody cared because something big was going to happen. It, it didn't matter anymore. There was nobody saying, don't do anything, you know. It was kind of like ABX, except uh, it didn't last very long. So I go home that night knowing that at some point we're going to change. We didn't know what the format would be. Nobody ever in their wildest dreams thought it would be country. Okay, that was never even thought of because that had never happened in Detroit. I don't think there was ever an FM country station. Uh, and the AM ones were, were, you know, country was in the background back then, uh, even though not necessarily in a lot of circles, but in Detroit it was on the radio. So I get a call at 6 a.m. Sunday morning, and uh, it's the, uh, I don't know who it was, but somebody called and said, we, we got a meeting, you need to come into work right now. Oh, God, 6 a.m. Sunday morning. Okay, well, I know what this is. It's happening. So I went and drove downtown, got to the station, walked in the door, got handed a cowboy hat. I kept oh. that hat until it got moldy. Uh, <laughs> for a long time, I kept that hat. And, uh, and so we went in, and they told us the news. And I remember vividly going upstairs to the studio after the meeting, and Doug was up there, Podell, and he was virtually in tears playing... Uh, I think a Ralph Emery show or something. Some It was all the country stuff was on an album and it was like a 30 minute thing. And so, but you, you didn't have computers. We got to remember no computers. You had to have bodies. And they told us in the meeting, they said, look, if you want to stay, we'd like to have you. We'd like to keep you here. We'd love to have you stay and do this. But if you can't handle it, now is the time to quit. And I remember looking at Howard, looking over at Howard and smiling and he smiled and I thought maybe, but no, we stopped. We didn't make that move right then. Uh, he still indicates, I believe that he never did country. I know he did one show, maybe two, but creative license for private parts, you know, but, uh, I stayed, Doug and I stayed because, well, you got to eat, you know? And, uh, and so this was, uh, and it was not easy because we had people throwing things at the window in the upstairs window up there from while you're there, on the air, screaming at us. Yeah, scream, and you couldn't hear it on the air because we were across the room and soundproofed. But, but you could hear the. I mean, people were just. I remember writing in the snow, traitors, you know, uh, that kind of thing. It was it was rough, but but uh, so I stayed for whatever period of time. Doug did too, and when Doug left. It was shortly after that that I left. We kind of kept each other sane uh, while that was going on, I guess. There you have it. The top five most downloaded episodes of season two of Radio Days, the podcast. Check back to the show as we prepare to start season three, where we will begin video streaming this program. If you like the audio of this podcast, you're going to love the new streaming, the new, the new video streaming of the show, and that will be available for season three and beyond. Today's show is produced by Ron Robbins Studios. If you need professional marketing videos, professional photography, headshots, maybe you need drone video or photography from a licensed drone pilot, head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com. And while you're there, you can also hear previous episodes of this podcast there as well. 
Until next time. You can't go. All the plants are going to die.